Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we discuss a time-honored summer tradition. No, not swimming or baseball, but simply reading. Or maybe it's not so simple. Our guest today is Dr. Anne McGill Franzen, director of the University of Tennessee Reading Center, who has researched extensively on summer reading. Welcome to the EdCast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So warm weather, sandy beaches, outdoor sports, blockbuster movies. How hard is it to add reading to a young student's summer plan? Well, it, um, I think it, it depends on how we perceive reading. Reading is not uh, typically just a solitary activity, um, isolated from friends, uh, if you are aware of the Twilight series and the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series, um, kids in in uh, the middle grades and uh, adolescent grades are dying to read those books. But not it's not because uh, the characters and identifying with the characters in those books. It's also about identifying with other readers of those series. Um, they read those series because others are reading them, and they want to be part of that culture. They want to be part of the reading and talking about the reading culture that such activity represents. I guess sort of related to the different cultures, uh, a report from the National Summer Learning Association published that if a low-income student does not read over the summer, he or she will lose two months of school each summer, and these losses compound each year. I guess, why is it such a loss for low-income students? Low-income students don't have uh, access to the, um, to the resources that um, middle and upper-class students have access to. Um, it's it's um, schooling. The time of schooling is characterized as a faucet. And so when school is in session, uh, the faucet is turn on, turned on and resources flow. Uh, when school isn't in session, you know, both after school, before school, and during the summer months, that faucet is turned off. And so um, given um, the uh, restricted access to books that uh, the uh, kids from low-income communities often have, uh, they lose ground during the summer, whereas middle and upper-class kids gain a month over the summer. So uh, researchers have said that most of the uh, reading or the achievement gap in reading can be accounted for by this, um, by this um, out-of-school lack of learning. Now, you just finished a three-year study on helping to sort of improve this, the low-income summer reading rates. Can you tell us a little bit about what this study was? We, um, you know, we were aware of the, the research on um, on these uh, summer slide or summer setback. Um, actually, it's it's not a new finding. Uh, over 30 years ago, uh, a researcher, uh, Barbara Haynes is her name, uh, looked at uh, activity over the course of the uh, school year and found that children learned at the same rate during school 
regardless of their uh, family income or uh, community or, or school, um, but that it was over the summer months that the slide took place. And she, uh, when she looked at the kinds of activities that seemed to make a difference in learning, she found that um, the only thing that made a difference in reading achievement was actually reading over the summer, not other enrichment activities. So, I mean, we've known about this uh, summer slide um, and the, you know, the effect on low-income kids for, for quite a while, but um, no one really had done a lot about it. And although there had been some studies that uh, actually uh, Jimmy Kim, from, uh, who, who was at Harvard, uh, he may still be at Harvard, um, did do a series of studies giving kids um, books but the researchers selected the books for the children, and it was um, these studies were typically one-year studies. And uh, prior research uh, noted that if summer school is going to be effective, it has to take place over three, at least three consecutive summers. And also, uh, researchers into children's motivation discovered that of all the classroom practices that could support motivation, um, access to interesting books and choice were the two most powerful influences on motivation. And so we, we took you know, these, um, these uh, prior findings to mean that uh, we possibly could make a difference in the achievement gap uh, with a uh, relatively simple intervention study, and that was actually giving kids books to read over the summer and to do it over three consecutive summers to you know, really uh, see if we could get results from this very uh, low intrusive intervention, and then to let kids keep these books, to choose them themselves, and to let them keep them. What were some of the books that the students would choose? Well, when we first started the study, we weren't exactly sure what they would choose. So we had a variety of books, probably um, about five or 600 over the course of each summer. Some of them changed over the three summers. Um, but um, we, we had selected books that aligned with the curriculum that were multicultural because uh, um, the majority, the vast majority of the children in our study uh, were not only uh, from low-income families, but they also were minority, primarily African-American, um, with, with uh, some uh, Hispanic and uh, Haitian children. Uh, and these children were actually from two different kinds of districts, one a poor urban district and one very poor rural um, uh, farming district. And so we, uh, we chose books that we thought would be aligned with the curriculum, multicultural, you know, to reflect um, their own cultures, uh, even in, in uh, different languages. And uh, we also uh, threw in pop culture books, uh, uh, books, you know, that had to do with um, singers and wrestlers and, you know, actors and actresses and that sort of thing. So what we discovered was the, the, the children selected books that had to do with uh, what we called their everyday culture, the um, pop culture figures. The Rock, for instance, was very popular. Um, the unauthorized biography of Britney Spears, the very first year we did the study, was um, by far the most popular book selected. And 
um, remember, these are primarily minority kids. <laughs> so um, that's when we discovered that probably um, the everyday kid culture transcends, you know, what we think of as um, as ethnic boundaries and that sort of thing. And um, because of the structure of these books and because it builds on what kids already know, it builds on, you know, what they know about the character from a previous book, um, it uh, it supports and makes explicit, you know, many um, features of narration and interpretation that um that children, you know, need to learn in order to become proficient. I guess that shows the importance of, you know, Harry Potter having seven books, the Twilight series being many books. Yes. Uh, it, it helps because they'll they'll follow yes. the series and therefore read. Yes, there's reassurance in the familiar. When I was a kid, I did the Book It program through Pizza Hut, and each book I read translated into a small cheese and mushroom pizza. What are other main motivations aside from choice and, say, pizza with summer reading? Collaboration with peers and discussion is another uh, piece to it because children like to talk about what they're reading. You know, they like to discuss it. And that is also related to knowledge goals, wanting to be an expert in something and in finding that, that topic or that area that you want to develop your expertise in. And so, I mean, that's what we do as adults, you know, when we read, um, you know, the old house journal or, um, I mean, I don't know what your reading materials are, but, mm. um, you know, the, the things that were, you know, food and wine, the things that we read to, you know, discover information to build our own, you know, knowledge, those, those are internal, you know, intrinsic uh, motivating factors as opposed to the, you know, the Pizza Hut thing. I mean, I think if you, you know, need to get kids started, you know, Pizza Hut, I suppose, is as good as anything. But if the classroom were set up or if parents or if um, teachers or, or librarians, you know, set up um, other things as uh, possibilities, like, you know, developing expertise in a topic, um, being able to discuss and collaborate with your peers around that topic or around the reading that you're doing and having actually access to books that are, you know, great and, you know, highly, you know, interesting to your peer group. You know, I think those would be more motivating. We'll be right back. If you're listening to this EdCast, you might have an interest in education. If you or someone you know is looking to start or continue studies in this field, then the Harvard Graduate School of Education may be worth visiting. With open houses and recruitment events on October 15th and November 5th, you can find more details under the admissions tab on gse.harvard.edu. We look forward to welcoming you to Appian Way. And we're back. What is the role of the library for facilitation of summer reading? Well, I think, you know, libraries can do a lot, but in um, it's been my experience in low-income communities. I mean, I, and this is, um, I, I'm sure that there are some low-income communities that have wonderful libraries, but in my experience, in low-income communities, the libraries have the most restricted hours. Um, and they're often, um, you know, uh, kids, if they don't return a library book, you know, their parents are billed for it. And I can begin to tell you how many times a parent will say, I don't want him to take a book home from the classroom or from the, the library because I don't want to have to pay for it. So, I mean, I think some, some of those policies are pretty restrictive. 
for low-income families. Right. Um, but, you know, um, limited uh, library hours, maybe not even having a library in, an, in impoverished communities, and there certainly is no Barnes & Noble there or anything. So, um, you know, so access is, is a huge issue for kids, which is why we chose to give them the books um, and, you know, have those books circulated, you know, within their families um, as opposed to just letting them borrow the books. Now, with summer library hours cut and oftentimes a lack of transportation to libraries amongst low-income mm-hmm. students, how much is technology playing a role in getting students to read, say, in the context of a video game or on the web? I think technology is playing a role in getting students to read. I, um, in general, I'm not sure about technology um, in uh, low-income communities because, again, I mean, just as they didn't have they don't have the same kinds of access to books um, that middle-class communities have. I'm not sure that they have uh, access to technology and the, the uh, an understanding of the uses of technology that um, perhaps uh, their more advantaged peers may have. I, I think it's fascinating about your research that when it appeared in the New York Times, It was not as an education article, but it was under Tara Parker Pope's health blog. I know. It truly emphasizes, you know, the cognitive health wrapped up in summer reading. What were your thoughts on Mm -hmm. that? I also think that it probably resonates, the issue of children's choice probably resonates with um, highly involved, um, well-educated parents who read that that blog. <laughs> so I don't know if you if you read the nine pages of comments, but you know there was quite a bit of controversy about um, whether or not kids should be um, um, seduced into reading with um, with books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid or Captain Underpants, or whether you know they should have um, more structure in in their choice of materials, and what would have the best payoff. For the children, so I think that um, that in that respect, it was uh, in the in the well um, the well blog because it had to do with parenting and development and that sort of thing. I think that parents often, you know, as uh, in one of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, um, the mother sets an egg timer, you know, for the child to read for 15 minutes every day during the summer. And, you know, of course, that's, you know, not a very pleasant, you know, kind of activity for a a child. Um, But on the other hand, if a parent would talk to the child, remember, collaboration and discussion are highly motivating as well. And it doesn't just have to be um, discussion with a peer, you know, although that is very helpful, but it can be discussion with a parent as well. Um, And I think that that, you know, parents, it would behoove parents to actually, you know, take an interest in the books that are being assigned to kids in school to read, to actually read along with them and have a conversation about, you know, what they're reading. Dr. McGill-Franson, when you were a child, what books did you choose to read during the summer? Um, Well, I read the series books. I read, um, what is the one? Not the Hardy Boys, but the other one, Nancy Drew. I read Nancy Drew and um, and in all those. And I, I, I actually read um, a books by a single author, too, like Hans Christian Andersen and that sort of thing. I mean, we didn't talk about um, 
author studies, you know, reading, you know, book after book by the same author. But as adults, we can relate to that as well. You know, that there's a, you know, like a genre that we, um, that we can, you know, really, um, that we really enjoy, that gives us pleasure. And uh, those are the things that, you know, draw us into reading and make us readers, whether we read online, whether we read, you know, the Kindle, whether we read with a book in our hands, you know, it's the pleasure that it gives us that, um, that makes us readers. And so I think that, you know, your, your, um, your question about, you know, should parents force their kids to read, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, you know, it may work for some kids, but um, probably not for the majority of the kids. What about you? What did you read, Matt, <laughs> since you're interested in this? <laughs> oh, I loved Raoul Dowell and Homer Price, and I read the Boxcar mm-hmm. Children and Matt Christopher books. Uh, yeah, and, and, and series reading was, was pretty important to me. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and think about, you know, the uh, girl with the dragon tattoo. You know, those three books, how they're sweeping, you know, not only this country, but the world. You know, people like those kinds of books. They engage us. So, and one more thing, you know, parents worry that kids, if they read, you know, what they call, what they think of as, or teachers or librarians, you know, librarians often are, you know, the worst defenders of telling kids, oh, you know, that's not a very good book or, you know, classroom teachers, I wouldn't have Junie B. Jones in my classroom. She, you know, talks trash or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I think that um, they, um, they should read uh, some of the research on avid readers. I know um, a Canadian professor, Catherine Ross, did an ethnography of avid readers, and she found that almost to a person, they uh, started off with these kinds of books. Well, it sounds like Nancy Drew and the Boxcar Children have been good to both of us. Dr. McGill Franzen, mm-hmm. thank you so much for appearing on the show. Okay, you're welcome, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. My name is Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.